0: Hello church. It's good to be with you. Pastor Mark here. I am so excited to be sharing God's word with you today. Whether you're watching this in the morning, in the afternoon, maybe even in the evening. Welcome. I wanted what I wanted to share first is I've noticed something happening. In our nation, it seems as though we're beginning to ask the question of what good news looks like in a pandemic and in a time like this. As we've been over a month of social distancing and we've been having and living in these stay-at-home orders, we begin to ask the question, what does good news look like? And so we're finding some answers. There's been an increase in reports of nurses being praised publicly for their acts of service during this pandemic. There's been grocery store clerks being applauded in grocery stores. There's been even celebrities hosting proms for high school students who didn't get to share and have that experience for themselves, all of these things are good, and they are good news, but it leads the church to ask the question, how can our good news, our good news in the gospel, be expressed? If we know what the good news is, then what does it look like in the church What does it feel like? Well, today our answers is found in chapters 18 and 19, where we see this harmonious example of discipleship. Discipleship is believers following Jesus together and teaching each other how to be more like Christ in our walk with the Lord. It's a beautiful presentation of the good news of the gospel. If the church is a painting, imagine with me discipleship being the brush strokes on that canvas, making the painting beautiful. You can have your paintbrushes, you can have your canvas, you can have your tool sets. I know these tools, I know how they work. I can even begin to draw something, but discipleship, discipleship is that mix of colors, that unique brush stroke that turns that painting into a work of art. Discipleship's the color, the nuance, the dramatic expression of faith in the church. Discipleship unifies and personalizes our walk with Jesus together and brings us together as we're sharing the same journey. And our passage today gives us two great examples and applications of discipleship that we can practice within our church now. Discipleship is personal and it's proactive. So let's dive in. This is the later half of chapter 18 and the beginning half of chapter 19. Now we find ourselves reading two storylines, being placed within two storylines with one similar problem coming together in one gospel solution. So first we see Paul and his missionary journey. This is his third missionary journey, and this time he's got Priscilla and Aquila with him. So who are they? We've seen them earlier in Acts. They're this couple, this tent-making couple, who follows along and has just been such a great support and an aid to Paul in his journey, in his missionary work, in his ministry. Now this group, this couple, they have, they're a powerhouse on their own. And so Paul takes a unique approach with them. Instead of having them walk with him and follow, with him, follow him in the ministry that he's doing, this time he's going, but then he drops them off in the inner city of Ephesus, while he continues on in Ephesus in the, inner, in the, uh, the rural parts of that area. Priscilla and Aquila, they are this couple in their own right, and they immediately begin to embark on disciple-making and finding missional opportunities that they can start bringing and making disciples in the ministry. And it's not too long before we see who God points them to. Let's read together in verses 24 and 25. It says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native Alexandrian, an eloquent man who was competent in the use of the scriptures, arrived in Ephesus he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately about Jesus, although he knew only John's baptism. So this guy sounds awesome. First off, he sounds really cool. He's this young guy, he's a young preacher, and he's grown up and been raised in two cultures, Jewish culture and as a Greek Now, this is a good advantage within this time because what it shows is that he can go in and out and move in between different cultures simultaneously, similarly to Paul. This is a great advantage. Now, he's a preacher. He's filled with this awesome youthful spirit. He's uh, fervent. He teaches the scriptures. He's teaching about the Messiah accurately, and he's kind of a Christian. Wait a minute, what? What are you talking about? He yes, he's kind of a Christian, is what I did say. Now let me explain. He was a Christian in the sense that he knew that Jesus was the Messiah. He knew how to live in obedience. He knew what to do and he knew how to do it, but something was missing. What was missing? As Aquila and Priscilla, they're listening to his speech, they're listening to him talk about the Messiah, something's kind of off. The delivery's good, but there's a problem at the core of his message. It's like pancakes with too much baking soda. It looks great on the outside, but as soon as you take a bite, you immediately notice that something's kind of off. So what's the problem? His problem is that His understanding of Jesus only goes so far. It only goes to John's baptism. He understands the Messiah being pointed to in the Old Testament, but nothing after that point. He spilt his faith on Christ, kind of. Now let's go to the other story here. We have Paul. Paul, in the rural areas of Ephesus, he's walking and he runs into 12 men. These 12 men call themselves disciples. And so as he's conversing with them uh, a little bit further, he notices that there's something also missing, similar to Priscilla and Aquila. What's off here? What's going on with these disciples? So he asks them in Chapter 19, verses 1 through 3, this is what he says. It says, Paul traveled through the interior regions and came to Ephesus. He found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? No, they told him. We haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Into what then were you baptized? He asked them. Into John's baptism, they replied. So what's going on here? Two stories converging and showing a similar problem. What is the problem? John's baptism. Not just that, but what John's baptism represents. What it, furthermore, the danger of what it leads to, let me explain here. John's baptism is the hope of repentance, but it's not the gospel. For Apollos, it's even more confusing because he knew that the answer was Jesus. He knew that Jesus was the the Messiah. But he didn't know why. He didn't know why. It's the image of faith. It's the living like a Christian. It's living living in obedience to God, but without the gospel. This is what's defined as biblical moralism. And moralism is dangerous. Moralism basically teaches, biblical moralism basically teaches that scripture in a way that separates godly obedience from the gospel. It's doing Christian things for the sake of themselves with the reliance not on Jesus but on yourself. This is the dangerous territory that Apollos unbeknownst to him, was teaching. Moralism says that if you don't live a perfect life, it's a failure. You've you've failed. Moralism holds the weight of yourself on your own shoulders. Everything from the good, the bad, and the ugly. No one can bear this weight forever. Eventually the weight of your own fallenness will crush you. But biblical moralism leaves you in this horrible tension of the in-between. Jamie Smith, he he wrote a book on Augustine's life, on St. Augustine, if you're familiar with him. He has this historical conversion of being in a garden. But just before that, as he was learning these biblical principles and the truth, and he was learning about the gospel, he felt what we could see as the same kind of tension of biblical moralism. He was living in this horrible tension of the in-between, of knowing what he should do but not being able to do it. This is what he says and this is how he describes it. I think it's really great. He's that complexity of knowing. He says he's being torn apart in this painful condition. Anytime there's a movement forward, he describes old loves pulling him back. He says the overwhelming force of habit was saying to me, Do you think you can live without them? His heart, a battleground for loves, manifesting in a body that is contorted and weeping. The sin within prevents one from this obedience, drawing this tension, this horrible feeling of being torn apart. Romans 7 describes this very thing. For the desire to do what is good with me, for the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. Verses twenty two verse twenty three for in my inner self I delight in God's law, but I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. Wretched man that I am. Now we're all familiar with that because what he's describing is the depth of sin and the inner self and the, that sinful pull that we have. But biblical moralism does not help, and that's why it's dangerous, because it says, live this kind of life. All the while you know that that's there and there is no rescue from it. So what is the answer? What is the answer and what is the rescue? The answer is Jesus. The answer is Jesus through the gospel, through his death and resurrection. We are saved and we find freedom from the bondage of sin. The gospel brings hope, the gospel rescues us. Two stories with one answer. And the two stories on the brink of collapse, both find their hope in the discovery of the gospel. For the twelve men, the gospel rescued them from a further life of diving into their sin with this unknowing tension of biblical moralism, thinking that they're doing what is right when really there is no rescue. The gospel rescues them. And for Apollos, the gospel corrects by teaching him that there was a resurrection, there's grace. What does this have to do with discipleship? What does this have to do with discipleship? The gospel is the answer to the problem of moralism. If the gospel is the answer, then discipleship is what the church uses to combat it. Discipleship directly fights against the belief of an individual moralistic attitudes by making believers one body in the church together. We aren't alone. We are unified in the Holy Spirit and it prevents no one it prevents people from not being islands, from being alone in themselves, but Being drawn into a group together, to be drawn into a family. So let's see how this is played out. Discipleship, these brushstrokes of grace. So, thinking through the importance of discipleship in the church, here are the two takeaways that I'd like to share with you and how discipleship can be practiced in the church. So, let's head back up to verse 26 and we'll see how discipleship is personal. Verse 26 says, He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. After Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained the way of God to him more accurately. This is a beautiful picture. This is a beautiful picture of discipleship and the personal element, the personal touch of discipleship. Let me show you. Here's this eloquent man this eloquent fervent young man capturing audiences and preaching with the preaching of Jesus but who should befriend him but this unlikely hard-working tent-making couple they invite him into their home they take and they they take his correction and growth as their personal responsibility they are making discipleship personal they see more in him than what he sees in himself because they hold the answer of grace in the gospel. Imagine this, con- this conversation of unlikely friends. They say, Apollos, you know the task that Jesus gave, but you don't know the help that he gives you to do it. You know the call to break with the past, you don't know the great power to live in the Holy Spirit. This is a theological infusion of grace and personal discipleship. Turning disciples' heart of self-dependence into gospel-saturated reliance on grace and the gospel, it is beautiful. And he didn't have to do it alone. God brought people to him through friendship, personal discipleship is so amazingly expressed. And I remember hearing a similar story like this from an old pastor on a Sunday, it was a number of years ago, and this example that this life experience of discipleship, this old pastor shared with us. He was describing the beauty of discipleship. He said that he was a new freshman in college. And he just arrived to the school and he got his books, he got his stuff, and he, and he goes down and he sits and he finds his dorm room and he gets settled in. And his dorm, it was settled in and his his desk was right up against the window and that window overlooked the main street. It was on the ground level. Well, the worst day of the week came. It wasn't Monday like you would think, it was Sunday. Sunday was the worst day for him. Why? Well, because Sunday was everyone's day off and he hadn't made any friends yet. Sunday was that painful reminder of the awkward loneliness that he had felt on being new and not having anyone to fellowship with. So, what does he do? He decides to bear this awkward loneliness by seeking comfort in his books. He starts studying, he starts reading, he starts studying his classes and getting things, but all of a sudden he's surprised by this knock on the window. He looks up, and to his surprise, he finds something quite surprising, I guess. He finds a group of elderly people looking very closely in the window at him and very concerned as to why this young man is not spending any time with anyone on sunday now he's kind of alarmed at this because they're really close to the window and they're looking at him and they ask him what he's doing when he tells them that he's there studying and he, you know he's not he's not doing anything that day well this this group is not going to have that this group decides that they're going to take this this young man under their wing and they're going to take him to church you wouldn't, I don't think you would find this in Seattle nowadays, but I think it's a wonderful, it's just this really funny picture of this group of elderly uh, people waiting outside for this young man to get ready and they're going to take him to church. So they, they do that. They wait for him, he gets ready, and he, kind of unsure of this group, he just goes along with them. And afterwards he says, it was kind of strange because we went to church. And then afterward, they took me to a diner. They bought me pie. And they kind of like sat and watched me eat it while I was, it's kind of like your grandpa or your grandma's watching you eat her pie. And they're just sitting there and they're watching him. And then they begin to ask him questions. They begin to talk to him. They begin to get to know him. They start this conversation. And as they get to know him, he starts to, break down some of his barriers, and he sees the genuineness of their friendship. During this time at the diner, he begins to open up about his past. He begins to talk to them about his concerns of being a college student and not having any friends, and he begins to express some of his worries. And as he reflects back on this, this is what he said. My friends' discipling first cured my loneliness. My friends' discipling me first cured my loneliness. Through genuine, personal discipleship, the gospel was shining bright. The kindness of God was reflected in the friendship of an unlikely group of people that blossomed into discipleship. And they saw him all the way through because every Sunday after that, they would pick him up. They would take him to church and they would talk with him after that. And over time, his beginning, his understanding of the gospel grew. He came to faith through them and later embodied what they taught him so that he would grow up to be an older man, taking on and discipling younger people. This is discipleship at its finest. When the beauty of the gospel is visible through the harmony of personal discipleship, and this is exactly what happens to Apollos, Priscilla and Aquila help him understand the grace of in the gospel. And what does he do? What does he do? Filled with this new understanding and empowered in this new gospel, uh, this new gospel discipleship that has just been. And, um, equipped him to now go off, and in verse 27, this is what happens. He goes off and he starts his own missionary journey. Verse 27, when he wanted to cross over to Akai, the brothers and sisters wrote to the disciples to welcome him. After he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating through the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. And later, in in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul describes Apollos' help in Corinth. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? They are servants through whom you believed, and each has the role the Lord has given. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave gave the growth. Apollos was helped. And he became the help to other disciples. Priscilla and Aquila make discipleship personal and then he is able to see what that good news looks like and bring it to another city to share the same good news by helping people see the same grace that he saw. Discipleship is also proactive. Looking back at Paul's story, he wasted no time in correcting these 12 men. So let's look here at chapter 19, verses 4 through 6. Paul said, John's baptism with a baptism of repentance, John, I'm sorry, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people that they should believe in the one who would come after him, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began to speak in in tongues and to prophesy. So we see this proactive discipleship at hand. Now listen, I know that it can be easy to wait for the right time. It can be easy as we're trying to discern what discipleship looks like in a certain kind of context as we're approaching someone, we can begin to wait for the right time. And it is a good thing to use discernment. It is a good thing to be patient, but we can't get stuck there. We can't wait for the right time to come if it's presenting itself in the now. We must be proactive. Because you may not get that chance again. Paul wasn't going to wait for them to approach him. He wasn't going to wait for them to ask him to disciple them. He wasn't going to wait any further because he knew that this opportunity was short and he must be proactive in how he was going to disciple this group of people. He made their spiritual inadequacy his personal responsibility and proactively engaged in correction. This was the time that God gave him, and so he used it. And that's a lesson to us. And He does this again in in uh, Tyrannus when some people they begin slandering the gospel. This is in uh, this is later on in verse nine. It says when, but when some became hardened and would not believe. Slandering the way in front of the crowd, he withdrew from them, taking the disciples and instructing them and in conducting discussions every day in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. So, what does he do? He takes them away and he removes them from a dangerous situation, proactively engaging in their spiritual discipleship and their formation. He cares about them and he knows that he can't just wait for any time. He must be proactive. Discipleship displays the gospel when believers take personal responsibility for each other's spiritual growth and proactively strengthen one another. This is what the good news of the gospel looks like in the church. The gospel gives us power to combat the loneliness of moralism through discipleship. In this time, it's easier to feel more like an island than a people. That's when you must remember the beauty of discipleship and to press into it, make it personal, proactively engage, following Jesus together, And teaching each other how to be more like Christ shows the world that this church is God's work of art. And we are here to celebrate this good news within us and the hope for the world. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the evidences of grace, the signs of grace and the discipleship happening in the church. And God, we pray that there would be an increase of personal and proactive discipleship. We pray, God, that we would exhibit this good news and exemplify it to the world around us, to our neighborhoods, to our friends, to the city. We pray, God, that you would use us Let your good news shine, and let us be able, through our relationships, through discipleship, to show the beautiful work that you're doing in your church. And we pray, God, for people to see that, to be drawn into the light of the gospel, that they would respond to it in faith. We love you in Christ's name. Amen.